today we are going to be talking about Emmanuel. Now, I know we have talked about, we've done a couple of teachings on Emmanuel. I know I've done one. Kyle has done one. Um, and so this should not be, and, and of course, those of us who grew up in church or any kind of Christian tradition, uh, religious tradition, we've heard about Emmanuel probably our whole lives. And I had some trouble titling this. I've been thinking about this since Sukkot. Um, but I had some trouble titling this this morning. So I think I called it something like The Challenge with Emmanuel, um, which is probably not a super good title. So I'll, I may end up changing it, but that's the working title. Um, and it's going to have to work for this morning. Tangled for some reason. There we go. Okay, so as usual with one of my teachings. We're going to start in the beginning. And where do you think we're going to start this morning? Wrong. (laughs) Matthew 1. If you open up your Bibles, Matthew 1. I don't have scriptures on the screen because there's some translation issues I want to deal with and I didn't want it to be confusing. So, um, So Matthew chapter 1. Um, while you're doing that, I just want to say, um, for those who are not with us this morning uh, because of uh, friends or family and they're uh, at gatherings, at Christmas gatherings, at lunch or, or you know, whatever with family, um, or if anyone has a commitment this evening and you're still feeling troubled about, should I go, what should I do, whatever... This thought hit me yesterday. I know for my family, and this is probably the same for yours, they know I don't celebrate Christmas. Most of your family by now probably knows you don't celebrate Christmas. And yet, they value you and your company and your relationship so much that they choose to invite you anyway. Now, for some of us, for some of you, maybe. It's not for my family, I don't, I don't think. It may be a missionary type thing where they're trying to convert you back. <laughs> As we've been told the last couple of months, it was someone that said that they were gonna convert us back. That might be their reason for inviting you to their Christmas dinner or Christmas lunch or whatever. But I would be willing to bet that for most of us, our families value us. They love us. And they know we don't celebrate this day. You may have given them all the reasons. You may have hurt their feelings. You may have done all the things. But they still invite us anyway. And so I think as image bearers and as people who are supposed to be righteous and and just, I think it's only right that we honor them enough and value them enough to go. I know that's going to be controversial for some people online, but if that's controversial for you, Uh, then you probably stopped watching a long time ago. I think it's important that we honor them enough to be together. So if you have an engagement coming up this evening and you're still wondering why, or if you're, if you're, you're, you're going somewhere and you're uneasy about it, don't be uneasy about it. Don't be uneasy about it. You're there to be with family. You're there to invest in time and memories and, and to be with kids and grandkids and, and nieces and nephews and your mom and dad and brothers and sisters and all those things. And that's what, is, that's what is important. And I do not believe that when we get to the final judgment 
that we're going to stand before God and he's going to say, I really love the way you pursued my Torah. I love the way that you tried to emulate my Messiah. But you really should have told grandma off about that ham sandwich she made you that one time. I don't think that's going to factor into the, the judgment scene. So, um, so give yourselves a little grace and mercy and, uh, <clears throat> and be kind. And I think it's all good. So I want to ask a question, and I'm going to monitor the live stream, the Facebook live stream chat. So if you're on Facebook, um, then please comment, if you will. I'm not sure which camera I'm looking at, one of these. Um, I'm not sure. Uh, it's about a 30-second delay, I think. I'm not sure, 20 to 30-second delay. So I want to ask the question, give you time to put your thoughts or your answers in. Uh, and you guys be thinking as well, because I want, I want your feedback and I want your answers. Um, and so I want to ask this question. What does it mean that God is with us? Now, there's no right or wrong answers necessarily. I'm not looking for, this is not a gotcha question. For you, for what you, you understand from what you've been taught or how, how your understanding has been in the past, for where you are right now in your walk and what God is revealing, um, for, for maybe what you hope and dream that God with us means, I'd like to get your feedback. So you guys think about it, and we're going to read uh, uh, Matthew chapter 1, several verses, and then we'll come back to this um, in, in just a second. Um, I'm teaching from my phone. I know some of you don't like that. I ask for your forgiveness, but it's just the easiest way for me to do it today. So let's read from Matthew chapter 1, and we're going to start in verse 18. And we're going to read 18 uh, on a few verses, probably through 25 or so. And it says, now the birth of Yeshua the Messiah happened this way. Now, this is Matthew, right? What did we say? Is Matthew a Jew or Gentile? He's Jewish, right? He's a tax collector. He's a Jew who's working for Rome, collecting taxes from his brothers. Kind of a sticky situation, right? Who is Matthew's audience, we said? Is it primarily Jews or is it primarily Gentiles or is it a mix of both? Do you remember? Primarily Jewish, right? Matthew has a primarily uh, Jewish audience. His main focus is speaking to, uh, to his Jewish brothers and sisters, okay? So it says, now the birth of Messiah happened this way. When his mother Miriam was engaged to Yosef, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through Ruach HaKodesh, through the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her publicly, made up his mind to dismiss her secretly. But while he considered these things, behold, an angel of Adonai appeared to him in a dream, saying, Son of David, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Miriam as your wife. Notice he says, Joseph, son of David. That's going to be really important later. Do not be afraid to take Miriam as your wife, for the child conceived in her is from Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you shall call his name Yeshua, which means what? Salvation. For he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by Adonai through the prophet, saying... Behold, the virgin shall conceive and give birth to a son, 
and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Yosef awoke from his sleep, he did as the angel of Adonai commanded him and took Miriam as his wife, but he did not know her intimately until she had given birth to a son and she called his name Yeshua. All right. So here we have Matthew, a Jewish author, excuse me, whose audience is primarily Jewish. And Matthew is writing some several decades after the death and resurrection of Yeshua. And as with all of us as humans, when something catastrophic happens, and I think we could call the, the life of the birth, the life, the death, and the resurrection and ascension of Yeshua all as catastrophic, not in a negative sense, but world-changing, absolutely shaking up the existence of anyone and everyone who came in contact with this Yeshua. Decades and decades later, as they are writing the Gospels, they are processing what is going on and what has happened You ever have something in your life, in your own life, that's, that's happened? It, it, it may be a wonderful thing. It may be a really tragic thing, whatever it may be. But something that, that, that shakes your, your trajectory in life. And you don't understand what it's there for and what it means in the moment. And yet you gain clarity over the days and weeks and months. Maybe sometimes years and years later. Distance from an event like that again whether good or bad tends to give us clarity it tends to help to clarify things and we may see connections and we may see um, meanings in those things that we didn't see right at the at the moment right for those that have lost a loved one a, a parent or, or a, someone close to you there's a there's a time of shock and a time of of, of hardship right when it happens but as time goes and the fog begins to clear and the the grief begins to to clear and lift a little bit we remember and we remember little things we remember the the little the little what didn't seem important at the time now become important the little sayings the little smirks the little jokes the little stories the things that 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 when we lost them we forgot about and we get to put that in a context and I choose to believe that that's how the gospel writers are looking at the birth, life, death, resurrection, ascension of Yeshua as Messiah. Decades later, they're looking back at it and saying, this event, this man, this, this advent, this coming has changed the trajectory of our lives. What does it mean? And how are we supposed to understand it? What are we to do now? So, I asked about God with us and what does it mean because Matthew quotes Isaiah chapter 7 a prophecy from Isaiah Matthew is the only gospel writer by the way that quotes this the only place this attribution to the angel saying that this prophecy is fulfilled through Isaiah and he will be called Emmanuel is Matthew is the only place does that minimize it? absolutely not I just think it's important to recognize Okay. He quotes, of course, from the book of Isaiah, which is over some 400 and something quotations. It's the most 
uh, quoted prophet by far of the New Testament, the prophet Isaiah. And we're, we're going to talk about why I think that is um, as, we, as we go along. So, what is, what does God with us mean to you? Anybody in here want to give a, an opinion, an explanation, uh, something? All right. So, it's, it's a lot braver to, whenever you're behind the keyboard, I guess. It's a lot easier to be brave. So, uh, Miss Alicia Davis says, for humanity as a whole, God with us means the gift of Ruach HaKodesh indwelling within and among us giving the ability to directly reach out to Hashem absent of a temple absent of a structure where he dwells physically this gift also gives the ability to of humanity the ability to humanity to know Hashem and to be spoken directly through our conscience wow I think that's pretty good Miss Terry Neely from out in Texas says God with us hard to answer in a few words lol (laughs) which it is but for her means that her beloved king is living in her midst and the rights authority and privileges that he brings debbie Carricker, also from out in texas says a day-long chit chat with abba father who i'm convinced loves me and has a personal path for me to walk through this life He's alongside, he holds me, he leads me with his eyes, he carries me. I don't have to petition a faraway king for favor, for help. My king walks right here with me, collects my tears, gladly enters my life's troubles and stresses and pain, patiently guiding me toward home with him. I think that's beautiful. Anybody here want to add anything? Anything else you think it means or it means to you? Okay, be that way then. I'll tell you what I think it means. So so Matthew tells us that Yeshua is the fulfillment of this prophecy from Isaiah that a virgin will bear a child and she will call his name Emmanuel which means God with us so I want to talk today about the challenges of Emmanuel of God with us Maybe I should call it something else. Maybe I should talk maybe I should call it something like we don't believe Emmanuel. Because when we think about Emmanuel, we think about some of the things that some folks online have mentioned. Some of the things that I know you are thinking. We think about hope. We think about love. We think about God's favor, God's faithfulness, and all those things are true. All those things are absolutely true. God is faithful. He is patient. He is present. He is here among us, with us. He has has made his abode with man. And we say, praise God, Baruch Hashem, bless God for that realization because that is true. And that that is a hope and something we have to hold on to. I want to talk about another side of Emmanuel that we don't think about and that we don't talk about a whole lot. So now we're going to go back to Genesis. To Genesis chapter 3. And we're going to start in verse 6. It 
And I want to try to answer the question, or I want to try to, to deal with the issue of why does Matthew, a Jewish writer speaking to fellow Jews, use this quote from Isaiah to apply to Yeshua? Because we're going to find as we actually go to read Isaiah, there's some problems with using this quote. Okay? So I'm going to take it away from you, and then I'm hopefully going to give it back to you. <laughs> All right? So let's start out in Bereshit 3. Genesis 3, verse 6. Of course, this is the garden scene. It says, Now the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a thing of lust for the eyes. And that the tree was desirable for imparting wisdom, so she took of its fruit and she ate. She also gave to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made for themselves loin coverings. And they heard the sound of Adonai, Elohim, going to and fro in the garden in the wind of the day. So the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of Adonai Elohim in the midst of the tree of the garden. And then Adonai Elohim called to the man and he said, where are you? And then he said, your sound, I heard it in the garden. I was afraid because I am naked. I hid myself. So right from the get, right from the opening chapters of the story of the Bible, right in Genesis 3, and I think even before that, we see that we have humanity on the earth. Now, if you take my particular reading of the opening chapters of Genesis, in chapter 1, as we've said before, God creates humanity, com communal humanity, a multitude of humans, not just Adam and Eve, a bunch of people, just like he does birds and fish and seeds and all the other things. Population. And then we have a human called out and placed in a sacred position for a sacred function, that being Adam, being the first king and high priest in, in Hashem's economy in his kingdom, and Hava, Eve, who comes beside him. We have humanity on earth doing their thing. And there comes a moment, and 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 God says, be fruitful and multiply, and he gives the blessings, and he does all, all those, those things and those beautiful promises that we have in the beginning chapters of Bereshit. But it never mentions God being in the garden. Genesis 2 never mentions God being with them. Until something happens. What is that something that happens? Say it. She eats the apple, right? So look at this picture in Genesis. We've talked about order and chaos, right? Ad nauseum. Hashem sets up Adam in the garden and begins to establish his order, godly order, righteous order, with Adam, the kingly priest, or the priestly king, Hava, his, his Ezer Konegdo, his necessary other, and sets up the order of the kingdom, in the garden they break the order which introduces chaos it introduces chaos 
And when chaos is introduced, all of a sudden, they begin to hear Hashem in the garden in the wind. God is with them when the chaos happens. They are subsequently, we know, exiled from the garden, right? To the east. They are sent away, away from God. So they are not with him anymore. That's the setup in the first three chapters of the book of Genesis. And I believe if we read the Bible as one united whole, one unified story with one big story arc, the entire purpose of Scripture is to get us back to the garden where, we can, where God walks with us. That's the end of Revelation. That's the end of the story. The end of the, the canon is that there is a new Eden, there is a new earth, there is a new creation where it's, it's like it was in the beginning. So God is with humanity in Genesis and then the fall happens and then it's a constant desire to get back to that place in the garden where God is with us, where there is Emmanuel. You don't have to flip here, but you can if you want. Genesis 28. I'm just going to pick out a few places that we see where we have this Emmanuel concept. Genesis 28. Um, we're going to read nine verses starting in verse 10. And this is Yaakov. And he says, Yaakov left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he happened upon a certain place and spent the night there for the sun had set. So he took one of the stones from the place and put uh, put it by his head and lay down in that place and he dreamed and all of a sudden there was a stairway set up on the earth and its top reaching to the heavens and behold angels of God going up and down on it by the way instead of envisioning this as like an extension ladder to heaven do you remember we've talked about ziggurats we talked about these man-made mountains where you'd put a temple on top. Up and down the ziggurat, think of a Mayan temple. We've seen that. That's kind of closest to our memory. What do you have on all four sides? Stairs that go up, right? In the temple, you had several sets of stairs, of steps that would go up. You would aliyah. You would ascend, right? So instead of thinking it's like a stepladder, which doesn't make any sense, Right? I think the picture that may be more helpful to think about this is this he's seeing a temple with stairs that are going from heaven to earth because in the ancient worlds we've talked about they didn't understand or they didn't believe in a cosmology as we do a heliocentric cosmology where heaven is somewhere else for them heaven was the high place on top of the mountain that's why they met their gods there and they built their temples there right and so for, De for, for Yaakov to see this ladder, this stairway, and on the top was heaven, that very much fits the ancient Near East understanding of temples. You're a person, you're a mortal, you're a human, you're down here on the earth. As you ascend up the temple steps, you go up to the temple and you are entering heaven. That's the way they thought about it. When Moshe is up on the mountain after receiving the Torah where, what does it say about that it says he saw sapphire right 
which is the floor of the throne room, the color of the carpet of the throne room, of the floor of the throne room. Not carpet, the floor. See, it's this idea of heaven. So I think that's a more helpful way to envision this. Just a, a little aside. It says, surprisingly, Adonai was standing on top of it. Well, that's where you expect the God to be, on top of, in, in, on top of the, the mount. So, uh, it says, and he said, I am Adonai, the God of your father Abraham, the God of Yitzhak. The land on which you lie, I will give it to you and your seed. Listen to this, these words that are spoken by Shem. Your seed will be as the dust of the land, and you will burst forth to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. And in you all the families of the earth will, will be blessed or will bless themselves. And in your seed. Behold, and here's the important part for us, I am with you. And I will watch over you wherever you go and I will bring you back to this land for I will not forsake you until I have done what I promised you. Yaakov woke from his sleep and said, Undoubtedly Adonai is in this place. He doesn't use the term Emmanuel. Actually, the first time we see it is in Isaiah. But the concept is there. The understanding is there. And I was unaware, he said. So he was afraid and said, how fearsome this place is. This is none other than Beit El, the house of God. This must be the gate of heaven. Early in the morning, Yaakov got up, took the stone with which he had placed his head, and he set it up as a memorial stone and poured oil on top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, though originally the city's name was Luz. So we have this idea here again of God promising to be with Jacob. Why is that such an important promise? Why is it such an important promise that God would be with Jacob? Because Abraham is the one that was chosen to be the new Adam. Abraham is the one that was chosen that him and his family line would take over and hopefully continue where Adam left off. And so Abraham, Yitzhak, and then finally Yaakov, this promise that I will be Emmanuel, I will be with you, harkens back to the garden. That God is not only promising Jacob that he's going to be with him along the way, that he's going to be a partner, he's going to be a pal, he's going to be a tag along and a buddy, he's going to be a comfort in times of hardship. The message is bigger. The message I want you to hear is bigger. That when he says, I will be with you, what he is saying is that we together in partnership, we are going to restore the Edenic idea. We are going to restore kingdom order. We are going to start to restore the garden through you. I will be with you as I was with Adam and Hava in the garden. Just a few more quick passages that we see. You can write these down and go back and read them later if you'd like. Genesis 46.4. He says, I will go down, to, down with you to Egypt. And I will surely bring you up again. And Yosef will close your eyes I will be with you in Egypt Genesis 26 3 he says sojourn in this land and I will be with you and bless you do you remember the, when we read the, about Bethel, the, the place at Bethel? What does God say? He says he was going to multiply Jacob's seed, right, to the north, south, east, and west. Doesn't that 
hearken back a little bit to the, 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 the Garden of Eden blessing, be fruitful and multiply. Now he's telling Jacob, I'm going to multiply you and I will be with you. Do you see how this connects back to the garden? Again, here in Genesis 26, he says, sojourn in this land and I will be with you and I will bless you. This is a new Eden. For to you and your descendants, I will give all these lands and I will establish the oath I swore to your father, Abraham. Again, in Bereshit, Genesis 31, 3. Then Hashem said to Yaakov, return to the land of your fathers and your relatives and I will be with you. So over and over we have this refrain throughout the Torah about, uh, through Genesis especially, about God being with them. And again, not to beat a dead horse, but I will because I think it's, it's foundational. The idea is, 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 we had some great answers from, from you guys online. Thank you for contributing to, to what does it mean for Emmanuel, and on all of y'all because you didn't say anything. But what, what it means for Emmanuel is, is that God is partnering with you to bring about new creation, to bring about recreation, to bring about restoration and tikkun olam. It's not just that God is with you in your personal matters, because I think sometimes we, many times, we, we narrow it to that. And not that that's unimportant, it's very important. But we have this God is with me idea. That God is with me and that he's going to help me and that he's going to lift my burden and that he's going to answer my prayer and he's going to hear my worship song. And we don't think about the fact that God is with us in a partnership for a reason. For tikkun olam. Next we're going to read from Exodus chapter 25 verses 8 and 9. A verse that I hope everybody knows. Shemot 25, 8 and 9, it says, Have them make a sanctuary for me, so that I may what? Vishakanti, Shikanti, Shekinah, the, the, the Shekinah glory. The Shekinah, Vishakanti, that I may dwell. Build a what? A sanctuary. Um, uh, the tabernacle, the Mishkan. You hear in the word Mishkan and Shkinah? Mishkan literally means the dwelling place. Mishkan, Shkinah, Vishakanti, that I may dwell. All these words are, the, are, are connected. They're all the same. Now, let's just think about this. How cool this is. What does God desire when he brings the children of Israel out of Egypt his number one desire is to dwell among them is to be in their midst is to be Emmanuel because when God is with us that indicates what Garden of Eden restoration recreation so what does God ask them to do he asked them to build a tabernacle a sanctuary a mikdash a mishkan what do we know from our just our cursory study of the tabernacle and temple what do we know the tabernacle and later the temple was fashioned after creation itself there are waters of chaos where the priests would wash 
there are three tiers to the tabernacle denoting heaven, earth, and under the earth. The curtain of the tabernacle entering into the holy place and, the, and into the holy of holies was filled with angelic beings and constellations and the stars and the sun and the moon. The tabernacle and the temple, when you saw it, you were supposed to remember creation. It's a recreation a, a, a micro creation of the Garden of Eden. That's what the tabernacle is supposed to remind us of. So the fact that God says to, e, to Israel, have them build me a sanctuary that I may dwell, hearkens again back to what? To the Garden of Eden. That here, between Hashem and these people called Israel, in this place, out of Egypt, going to the promised land, here now we are going to begin to rebuild the Edenic ideal of godly order and godly kingdom in the earth. Y'all, if you're tired, just go to sleep because I'm excited and you won't hurt my feelings. I promise. All right, Isaiah chapter 7. Here we'll get to the, to the good part. Now again, just know this. I want to forewarn you because I might hurt your feelings and I just want to say I told you so, okay? Isaiah in some Christian circles, some Christian scholastic circles is sometimes called the fifth gospel. Why is that? Well, because you can read big sections of Isaiah and they sound real Jesus-y, right? Like you read them and you go, well, obviously, this is obviously talking about Yeshua. It's obviously predicting Yeshua. I mean, like Ray Charles could see that this Isaiah is talking about Yeshua, right? For those of you younger, Ray Charles is blind, so or was blind. So anyway, um, so Isaiah has has been understood in Christianity as this very Yeshua-centered, predictory type of of prophetic writing. Okay. And we know this. You can think of the, the, the phrases and the allusions to Isaiah from, from the Brit Hadashah, from the New Testament. But let's do a little bit of background on Isaiah first. Isaiah, written in definitely two different parts by two different people or groups of people. We have a voice change in Isaiah about chapter 40-ish or so where Isaiah's writing and you can tell it's one voice writing through all the beginning of Isaiah it's one it's one constant stream and then all of a sudden it changes voices like this is not the same person writing so in scholarship we have a first and second Isaiah not that we have it in our bibles the way that that it's 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 thought to be and the idea is that Isaiah an actual human historical human being named Isaiah wrote the majority of Isaiah and then later on, a group of maybe his disciples, uh, maybe his scribes or whatever it may have be that studied after him, wrote another part of Isaiah. Some scholars even think there might be a third Isaiah, a third part of Isaiah. That's in the weeds, not important. But what is important is that Isaiah is a prophet. So, well, duh. 
Well, it's important that we understand what a prophet is because we don't know what a prophet is. Well, let me just say this. Based on my background and the garbage that I have lived through, I have trouble correctly understanding what a prophet is. Because see, to me, a prophet is supposed to be somebody that drives up in a really nice car and wears a really nice suit, lives in a beautiful home in a go- on a golf course in Florida. And I'm not thinking of anybody specific. Um, so if you know anybody like that, I don't mean it. But comes and, and preaches a message-ish. Not, usually not a real good preacher. But then with a frothy mouth and a red face and veins sticking out here and there, does some shandahololololahalas and tells you all the ways that God is going to bless you and prosper you. And that's what a prophet does. A prophet tells you the things you want to hear. I think in the Bible they call these people soothsayers if we're really to call it what it is. Prophets today are used for church membership drives. When there's a little lull in the, in the church, you bring in a prophet. They're used for outreach. They're used to boost giving. Oh, don't believe me? <laughs> Oh, man, some of the stories that we could all tell, I know, for sure. They're used for fundraising, all these different kinds of things. Let's talk about Isaiah. Isaiah begins to to, to prophesy 740s or so, which is the beginnings, the rumblings of the Assyrian exile. So the nation has split, northern Israel, southern Israel, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, there's all this inner fighting and Israel itself under King David was very, very strong was very stable then they split after Solomon, after Shlomo and they became kind of weak and ineffective they became uh, they became it became very hard for them to be the strongest in the region and so who do you have? you have in the scene you have Israel and then you have south you have Egypt which is a massive empire to the north and northeast you have Babylon and Assyria and Israel the kingdoms of Israel are stuck in between these massive superpowers of their day we should know this because we spent some time in the silent years where all of this stuff is still continuing to happen right So Isaiah begins to prophesy as the war machine of Assyria is upsetting the Fertile Crescent and the area of of Israel and the region. And he's beginning to prophesy, we know Assyria is coming, what does that mean for us? See, prophets in the scriptures show up during times of crisis. When did we say that the the scriptures tell us that Hashem walked with Adam and Eve? After chaos had entered the garden, right? In a time of crisis. Yaakov, when he's in Bethel and he has the dream, what is he doing? What's going on in his life at that point? Does anybody know? Huh? 
He's fleeing. He's running from Esau, right? A time of crisis. And God says, I will be with you. And if we look at the, 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 the Tanakh, we can see these three hot spots of the prophets. One hot spot, you have several prophets that are prophesying pre-exile. Trouble's coming. You have several prophets that are prophesying during the exile. Trouble is here. And then you have prophets that are prophesying as the return begins to happen. Oh no, we're free. What do we do now? God sends prophets during times of crisis. Prophets are not soothsayers. The Bible actually teaches against that. Biblical prophets are crisis managers. And here's the really insane thing about prophets. My understanding, and I admit I've got baggage here. I always want to admit that. You guys all know that by now. I've got plenty of stuff I'm working through. But the, the, my idea of a prophet is always this person, this man or woman, and I've known some genuine prophets. I don't want to minimize prof, the prophetic gift altogether. Because when it is genuine, it is incredibly powerful and necessary. So I want to be very careful to say that. But this prophet that kind of walks around six inches above the ground and just has this direct weird line to God. And, and you can be having a normal conversation and all of a sudden they 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 flip and like they get this glaze and you're like uh oh they're they're tuning in like you can like it's a weird thing and yet when we study the life of biblical prophets their gift was in analyzing what was happening and number one hearing from God about what was happening but also communicating to the leadership and the people why it was happening where was God involved in all of it and what the outcome would be? There's a lot of details in the prophets, but listen, basically, the prophets have a template. The template is Deuteronomy 28. If you do these things, then I will bless you in all these ways. If you don't do these things, then these curses will come upon you, all these curses. That's the prophetic template. And so Isaiah begins to prophesy during the time of the Assyrian upheaval. And when I say he begins to prophesy, I know what a lot of you are thinking. Because I still think the same thing. When I say the word prophesy, you automatically think he begins to tell the future. He begins to talk about the future. He begins to give the king insight into what's going to happen. And while that's a part of it, I, wanna, I want you to understand that's a very small part of it. Because the, the, the prophet's first job is to stand in the gap between God and a disobedient people. So, the people of God are sheep. Welcome. And we're all in a fence. And that fence is called the Torah, the covenant. We're all in a fence. We're protected we have beautiful, lush pasture. We have fresh flowing water. We have everything we could possibly want inside the fence. But one of us, probably one of y'all, not me. One of us 
gets this harebrained idea that there's something better on the other side of the fence. And so we might do, like you see livestock doing all around here, we might stick our head through the fence. There's, there's better grass where you're standing, but you want what's right there. And, and that temptation for what's outside the fence may become so great that you may actually break the fence. You break a gap in the fence and, and you haul off and you run outside of the protection of the Torah and the covenant. And all of us, because if you ever watch sheep, they just, they'll follow each other off a cliff, literally. Nobody goes, hey guys, we shouldn't be doing this. No, they just, oh look, that one's excited and it's running. We're all going to run after it. Don't know where we're going, doesn't matter. Somebody's exciting and they're running, we're running too. And humanity's a lot like that. Against all evidence, we will believe that there's a reality that is, really isn't there. And so we, we all follow you outside of the, or you follow me outside the gap, and then we're exposed to the world. We're exposed to all the adversarial forces. And then God sends a prophet to stand in the gap and to say, hey, you bunch of rebellious, stiff-necked, sinful idiots get back in the fence the prophet's primary job is not to say well God loves you where you are God's going to bless you wherever you are God's got wonderful things for you in the filthy rotten sin you're living in the job of the prophet is to say you're rebellious you're idolatrous you're unrighteous you're unjust you are going to kill yourself if you don't get back in line and get back now. That's the prophet's job. And if you do, God will recover you and restore you and redeem you and bless you and be with you. And if you don't, death and chaos and consequence is what you have to live with. Now you make the choice. Thank you. Have a nice day. So we see all these things happening as we read through Isaiah and Jeremiah. All, and these prophets, we see these, we see these things happening. Now let's talk about Isaiah 7 real quick. Because this is where Matthew's prophecy comes from, or where Matthew pulls from, right? It opens up in the first verse of chapter 7. It says, In the days of Ahaz, Ahaz, king of, or sorry, son of Yotam, son of Uzziah, king of Judah. So Ahaz, king of Judah, okay? King Razin of Aram and King Pekah, son of, excuse me, Ramalia of Israel, went up to attack Jerusalem, but could not mount an attack against it. When the house of David heard that Aram had allied itself with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. Then Hashem said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and your son, uh, Shir Yeshav, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field, and say to him, Take heed and be quiet, do not fear. 
Do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands. I love that. Because of the fierce anger of Razin and Aram and the son of Ramalia. Because Aram with Ephraim, the son of Ramalah, has plotted evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and cut off Jerusalem and conquer it for ourselves and make the son of Tabil king in it. Therefore, thus says the Lord God. Let's stop there. So Hashem says to, so you have Ahaz, right? Ahaz is the king of Judah, the southern kingdom, right? And what is happening? What is happening? Is this a time of crisis? Boy, you bet it is. Ahaz is losing his mind. He's melting down. He's freaking out. Because the Assyrians are coming, right? The war machine is coming. Now, again, we've talked about this before. We don't know what this is like. It's hard for us to imagine ourselves in this spot. But let's just, for the sake of argument, let's just imagine the Russians are coming. And let's imagine, or the Chinese are coming. Because the Chinese, they're, so, they're like ants. There's like a billion of them. They're coming. And we don't have the capability to defeat them. We know that, period, full stop. And I know, again, this is hard for us to understand and to think about. But they're coming. And King Ahaz is freaking out. And we have allies that used to be allies that are no longer allies. And Ahaz is getting pressure from the northern kingdom, right? The son of uh, uh, Ramalia. He's getting king pressure from them that they should, he should join them and align with Syria and the Assyrians. So, so, so your own brothers to the north are telling you, hey, look, just come and be a part of us. Make a treaty with us be diplomatic it's all Gucci it's all kosher everything will be great and Ahaz is like heck no he's not having any of it and so they are plotting to kill Ahaz when it says move on Jerusalem or take Jerusalem what they mean is to kill Ahaz and to replace him with this tabil this more compliant king so that basically the southern state of Israel the southern kingdom is ruled in by a puppet that the northern kingdom and the Assyrians can basically tell him to do whatever they want. So you understand what kind of turmoil Ahaz is in? That's what I want you to understand. Because the prophecy of Isaiah 7 is not about Jesus. So you have to understand what Ahaz is feeling. Because Isaiah is not talking about Yeshua. He doesn't know about Yeshua. He has no idea what Yeshua is, is going to be, if he will ever be. He has no clue. Because Isaiah is not a fortune teller. Isaiah is a crisis manager. His job is to stand in the gap and to tell Israel where they've messed up, to call them to repentance, and to counsel the king on the way to get Israel back restored with Hashem. That's the, the job of a prophet. We have to get this fortune-telling, future-telling, soothsaying idea of prophets out of our heads. And if you don't have that baggage, Baruch Hashem. If you do, stop it. We have to understand what Ahaz is dealing with and what the people of Israel are dealing with because that's who Isaiah is speaking to. 
I've said this over and over and over again. What good is a prophecy if it doesn't help the person it's being told to in their moment of crisis? Hey, uh, guys, China's coming in and they're going to completely sweep over the land of America like locusts. But in about 3,000 years, America's going to be independent again. Happy life. Let me, let me if, if that's une, uh, uh, it's hard for you to, to, to understand or to get your mind around, let me just, let me just ask you this way. When you're in a time of crisis, don't you want a word now? You want a rhema, a now word for your time of crisis? Don't we all? Yes. Don't feel guilty about saying so. Yeah, I want to know how God's going to help me. Where is God? What is he doing? How am I going to make it out of this time? And if God is not speaking to Israel and King Ahaz in their time of turmoil, when he's when he gives the prophecy about what we'll get to in a second, if he's not speaking to them in their time of turmoil, he's really speaking to us about Yeshua, then how can we be sure that when he speaks to us, he's even talking to us? Everybody okay? All right. So the second half of verse 7, or verse... Uh, Verse 7, therefore, thus says Hashem Elohim, the Lord God, it shall not stand and it shall not come to pass. What is he telling Ahaz? Don't listen. You're being threatened. These nations, don't, don't worry about it. Okay? He says, verse 8, for the head of Aram is Damascus and the head of Damascus is Rezin. And then I have a parenthesis here. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered, no longer a people. The guy that's trying to bully you, they're not even going to exist. Verse 9, the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramalia, the northern kingdom. If you do not stand firm in faith, you shall not stand at all. Come on, Ahaz, get it together, buddy. You got to stand strong. You got to be courageous. Verse 10, again, Hashem spoke to Ahaz saying, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. A sign of what? what? What's the sign? What's the sign he wants Ahaz to ask of? What is he asking for? Ahaz is in turmoil. What's the sign? That God will, will make sure that Ahaz is okay. That everything's going to be okay. I need, God says, ask me for a sign, as deep as Sheol or as high as the heavens. But Ahaz in verse 12 says, I will not ask and I will not put Hashem to the test. Then Isaiah said, hear then, O house of David, O house of David. There's that phrase again. Is it too little for you weary mortals, or for you two weary mortals, that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. He will give you a sign of what? That God is with you. In your crisis, in your turmoil, in your, your life is about to be torn apart, your very existence is about to come apart at the seams. 
God's going to give you a sign that God is with you. Look, he says, look, look, observe. Now, this is really interesting because we attribute Matthew's attribution, or we think of Matthew's attribution of saying that God is with us now through Yeshua. And it means all these things to us. It means we're saved from our sins. It means that for some people, we're not under the law anymore. It means for some people, there's, it means all these things to, to different people. But the reason why I'm going through this exercise and being so belligerent about some of these things is because when you have a New Testament author quoting a prophecy, that prophecy is hardly ever about what the New Testament author says it's about. That's really important to understand because of what we just talked about. God is prophesying to people at a moment when they need it. And we can, there's layers to prophecy, sure, sure, sure. But what I want you to understand is that that statement makes it sound like we're minimizing the prophecies as they're spoken about in the New Testament. But hopefully what I can show you is that we don't really understand the prophecies of the New Testament unless we understand the moment they're being given and why they're being given and what they're being given for. I hope that makes sense. So he says, look, this is the sign. You ready? What's the sign? The sign, obviously, is miraculous, miraculous virgin birth. God in fitting himself in a flesh suit and being among us. I'm not making fun. I'm, I'm trying to stop, just for a moment, stop thinking, stop thinking Christian gospel. Just for a moment. Ahaz is terrified. He's melting down. What am I going to do? What is our kingdom going to do? What is Judah going to do? What is the house, the line of David? What is it going to, what's going to happen to it? And Isaiah, being one who reads the times and knows how to analyze what's going on and see patterns and motifs and, and, and also hears from God, says, look over there. There's a young woman. Oh, wait, but mine says virgin. Yeah, but get any study Bible and look, that word for virgin is young maiden in Isaiah. It's not virgin, it's young maiden. He says, look, the young woman, and I know most of the translations you're reading, says shall conceive right check your translation does it say shall conceive will conceive as in future tense verse 14 shall conceive will conceive most translations say shall will which sounds like future telling But from the research I've done, from the looking that I've done, the more accurate way to read this is the young woman is with child. 
She already is. So Isaiah's not making a future prediction to Ahaz. He's, he looks around and he goes, how am I going to comfort King Ahaz? And whether by inspiration, revelation, whatever you want to attribute it to, he goes, ah, look, there's a young woman who's pregnant. Just a young pregnant woman. Happens all the time, doesn't it? Young woman who is pregnant, and he says, she is with child and she will bear a son, and his name, and she will call him Emmanuel, God with us. And then we stop. And we go, obviously that's Yeshua. Except for Isaiah, it's not. And for Ahaz, it's not. For Ahaz and for Isaiah, it's a way to keep Ahaz from losing his mental stability and assuring him and giving him hope that his kingdom will be kept intact or restored at a later time. Let's continue reading, as a matter of fact. Verse 15 says, He shall eat curds and honey by the time he knows how to refuse evil and choose good. For before the child knows how to refuse evil and choose good, the land before whose kings you are in dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring on you and your people and on your ancestral house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. He, he's saying, look, Ahaz, here's the sign. You see that young lady over there? She's pregnant. She's going to have a son and she's going to call him Emmanuel, God with us. And you watch that child grow up. And what I'm telling you is that by the time that child knows good from bad, God is going to already have taken care of the people that you're so scared of. So every time you see that child, you remember that God is with you. You remember. Because, see, when you're in a time of crisis, one word from God is not always enough. Right? One, one encouragement from Scripture is not enough. Because sometimes if it's real crisis, you need constant, moment by moment, minute by minute, hour by hour, day by day, reassurance. You're not being needy, you're being human. And so the sign that Isaiah, that God through Isaiah gives to King Ahaz is a boy who will grow. And as he grows, Ahaz, every time he sees him, can remember, God is with me, God is with me, God is with me. And God will restore the line of David. Now, let's go back to Matthew. Matthew says, this is how it all happened, folks. That Mary, a virgin, a young maiden, I don't care how you look at it, virgin, young maiden, we can have that debate and that discussion. What I want to focus on is that he uses Isaiah's prophecy. Now, remember I said that Isaiah wasn't prophesying about Yeshua. I don't believe that's what Isaiah had in mind. However, Matthew looks back decades later and says, 
this guy, Yeshua, is the fulfillment of that prophecy. How could he say that? How could, he, how could that be in his thinking? Well, what does Yeshua do? See, Matthew is prophesying not from the beginning. He's not a stenographer that's writing down everything that's said. He's prophesying with hindsight, or he's writing with hindsight. He's heard Yeshua's teachings. He's seen Yeshua's miracles and compassion. He's seen his bloody death. He knows and has witnessed his ascension, his resurrection and ascension. Matthew is writing through all of that understanding. And so when he begins to write his gospel, in the beginning he can say, the summation of all of Yeshua's life is a fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah. What is the sign supposed to tell King Ahaz that God is with you? God will restore and preserve the line of David, the house of Israel, and what do we say Emmanuel always alludes to? Eden, right? That God is continuing to restore Eden through you, King Ahaz. So when Matthew says, the angel of the Lord came and told Mary, or came and told a prophecy of Yeshua, we'll have a son and he will be called Emmanuel. Was Yeshua ever named Emmanuel? He was named Yeshua. But what is he? And why is that prophecy ascribed to him? Now that we understand what it meant to Israel when it was given to Ahaz by Isaiah, now it doesn't minimize the fact that it wasn't talking about Yeshua in the first place. It should completely flower and blossom and blow open and it, should, it gives me goosebumps because you see, when we read this disconnected from the original prophecy, we go, well, like, oh, it's a virgin birth and it's God incarnate. Great, cool. What does that mean for me? It means God's gonna save me. It means God's gonna deliver me from my sins. It means that I get to go to heaven. It means that I, 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 I. But what if it means something much bigger than you? <gasps> I know. How is that even possible? Or me? <laughs> what if it means that this Yeshua that was born of Mary and Ruach HaKodesh, as it's talked about in Matthew, that he is God with us and that that knowledge and that understanding and that reminder means so much more than just he'll forgive you from your sins and he'll give you a pass into heaven. So real quick, in the last 12 minutes, for me, this is what Emmanuel means. Number one, I'm not a very good Baptist. I got four points instead of three. Number one, Emmanuel means access. 
It means access. There is today and there always has been a bunch of question about, and a bunch of debate and a bunch of controversy and, and, and conversation about is, is Jesus even historically real? Was he ever a real person? Did he ever exist? Is he God or is he human? Or is he a little bit of both? Is his, are his teachings and his stories something that's just made up by people? Or are they really, are they legit? Did he do away with the law or did he confirm and uphold the Torah? Heck, there's a lot of people that just, that believe Jesus was a Christian. We know that's obviously not true. But there's, there's been so much debate and so much swirling around. And there is today in the Hebrew Roots movement, there's a lot of debate about whether Yeshua is even the Messiah. Here's what I know. I may not be able to apologetically defend and explain why he is and why I believe he is and all this kind of stuff. I'm, that's not my gift. That's not my strength. And I don't really care to do that. This is what I do know. What I do know is that because of a man named Jesus, Yeshua, Joe Amon in 20... No. In 1986 or 7, found access to the God of creation through a man named Jesus. I don't know all the legalities. I don't know all the fulfillments or not fulfillments. I couldn't stand, I couldn't debate a missionary or an anti-missionary on the technicalities and legalities of why he is or isn't whatever you think or want him to be. I'm not that smart. But I do know that because of a man named Jesus, Yeshua, who came to this earth, however you think it happened, and brought the idea and the reminder and the sign that God is with us, now I have access to the king of the universe. Emmanuel means access to Hashem. When the tabernacle was placed in the wilderness, it meant access for the people. But access doesn't mean ease. It doesn't, God's not a genie. And Yeshua is not some, it's not some abracadabra. That now that we have access to God, if God is the God of the whole world and we have access to Him, then obviously He should make everything work in our favor, Right? How many of you sitting in here has that worked for? Okay, I didn't think so. So we've got to get that fairy tale genie Yeshua, genie God out of our minds. That's not reality. That's not what the Bible teaches. It doesn't mean it's going to be easy. I love Brady had a Facebook post about yesterday. I wish he was here. I'd pick on him, but maybe he's watching. I'll pick on him online. About how he patiently waited in line for coffee and waited and waited and waited. And he made a joke to the young lady who, that she didn't get um, about it now being a senior coffee because he waited so long. And, and he was patient. He was all proud of himself, right, for being so patient. Got in his truck and spilled half his cup of coffee on himself. <laughs> you ever had a day like that? You're doing so good. You're doing so good. You can feel the access, the connection. You're, you're winning over this flesh, man. You're winning. You're crucifying this flesh. And then, you know, 
Access to God doesn't mean ease. Emmanuel with us doesn't mean everything's going to be easy. We know that, but somehow we still have this conditioning that, oh yeah, but if I prayed more, if I had more faith, if I read my Bible more, if I learned Hebrew, if I did the commandments. <laughs> That's true. None of this is a magic key to unlock ease. There's a statement that, <laughs> it's, it's kind of curt, but life sucks. Get a helmet. You're not going to miss the stuff that, that life throws at you. So suit up. Be prepared to take it on. Emmanuel means access. God is with us. We have access to him. But here's the funny thing about, and that's where most Christians live, in access. We live in access. We pray, we ask, we put our petitions before God. We live in the access. We enjoy the access we have. Boldly into the throne room. <laughs> okay. What we forget, and why there's a challenge, why I titled this, maybe erroneously, the challenge with Emmanuel, is that because we have access, we also have requirements. In the temple world, this is called Kedusha. We've talked about this. That as an average Israelite, there wasn't many, there really wasn't the Torah out of the 613 Tarag mitzvot. As an average Israelite, there's really not that many that apply to you. You just kind of farm and you graze livestock and you do your thing, and, and it's good. Like, do you want to marry somebody? Go marry them, whatever. It's fine. As an average Israelite, not much applies to you. There are a lot, but not, not as many as we think. Oh, but wait, if you're a Levite, then, whoa, you just entered a whole new sphere. Of requirement. Why? Because now you get to work in the place where God is. You have more access. Oh, and then if you're a Levite who's a son of Aaron, oh, you have more requirement. Why? Because you have more access. Oh, if you are the Kohen Gadol, oh, you got all the access, but you also got all the requirement. You have all the kedusha, And see, however close we want to be with Hashem is not on Him. It's on us. And so many of people are living in access. None of us here. I know I'm preaching to the choir a little bit, but hopefully this will help you when you have conversations with, with other folks. We live in the access and we, we, we take the access for granted because we are not elevating our kedusha in proportion to the access that we wish to have. You wonder why people can seem like, it seems like they just hear from God all the time. It's probably because they spend mountains of time in prayer. You might want to hear from God, but you don't want to put in the time. The kedusha is not proportional to the access. Oh, so-and-so, they're so successful with this. I wonder why. Because they've paid the price. They've done the work. They've done the time. Oh, they understand all these connections and all these scriptures. And How do they do that? Because they've invested in sacrifice. Because their kedusha is proportional to their access. It requires, Emmanuel requires holiness on our part. That's what Kedusha is. It requires holiness. That's why it's a challenge. Because God doesn't just show up and go, I'm here, let me fix everything. God shows up and goes, okay, let's partner up. 
oh, wait, wait, partner up? No, no, wait. No, no, wait. I, I just wanted to say, Jesus, 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 and everything be done. No, 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 no. That's not how it works. God shows up and goes, okay, what are we going to do about this? And we go like, well, I thought you had the answer. And he goes, well, like, no, I'm here to partner with you. Let's do it. What do you want to do? Let's do it. Let me do it with you. Jacob, Abraham, Adam, Joshua, David, Ahaz. Let's partner together to bring this Garden of Eden ideal back. What do you say? Uh, I just wanted to be saved. You see? You see? When we don't connect Matthew's rendering of Isaiah to what Isaiah is really about, see how how small how how small well Jesus came to save our sins great no that's just the beginning of this whole wide world of partnership to bring kingdom to bring the garden of Eden back how many Christians how many of our beloved fathers grandfathers grandmothers aunties uncles great great whatever that loved God and lived for God in their time and in their space and in their influence and yet didn't repair anything didn't restore anything because what they thought is that they just get to go to heaven I don't want to live a life that small I don't want to live a life that small like my grandmother did that all she did and all her prayer and all her study she was just so thankful that she got to go to heaven that's small thirdly after Kedusha is responsibility which we're basically talking about right now there's responsibility the challenge with their with the challenge with Emmanuel is that there's responsibility we have to do stuff God, I wish you would feed the hunger in our community. God's never going to answer that prayer. Never. God, I sure wish you would take care of the old, the, you know, the old man down the street who's alone and doesn't have anybody. God's never going to answer that prayer. God, I wish you would, I wish you would, uh, you know, I pray, God, that you would cause justice to be in our governmental institutions. How is God going to bring justice to our governmental institutions? When we raise young men and young women who are full of righteousness and justice and instead of becoming youth pastors, which we don't really need any more of, to be honest with you, and pastors, which we don't need any more of, to be honest with you, they become and they, they, they grow up in righteousness and justice and understanding of what's, what's, what's good and proper and what preserves and promotes order and life and they run for city council and they run for mayor and they run for state representative and they run for national house of congress and they, they become judges and advocates and they run for president. That's how we bring justice to the governmental systems. Not by saying, God, I pray you bring justice to our leaders. Bring us leaders that are full of justice. Raise leaders that are full of justice. Pray over your children and grandchildren that they walk in justice and righteousness. God doesn't bring those people. We raise those people. There's a responsibility. That's a problem with God being with you. It causes responsibility that many people don't want. Lastly, 
Emmanuel does mean hope. And hope is a word that it might seem soft and squishy and, 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 and weak. But if you've ever been without hope, you understand just how big of a deal it is. Ahaz, what he needed. See, Ahaz was the king. He represented the access to God. The, the national, he was responsible for the national Kedusha. Israel had not done well in its Kedusha. That's why they were, they were facing the problems they were. Is, Isaiah tells us about the idolatry. The responsibility, what he needed in order to, to have all those things, he needed hope. He needed hope that he was going to survive that he, the line of David was going to survive through him. You've ever been without hope, you realize just how big of a deal hope really is. So I want us all to leave here. Not with a hope that Yeshua is going to fix it. But with a hope and a strength from that hope and a motivation from that hope that through Yeshua, God is with us and we're going to fix it together. And you know, we don't celebrate Christmas, but it's a great time as friends and family and the rest of the nation, the rest of the world is. It's a great time for us to really remember. We sing songs, we, you know, we hear songs like, like joy to the world. We could do with some of that. I know a lot of people in the Hebrew Roots movement that could do with a little joy. And we bah humbug them for singing it. We're not singing it. And we're supposed to have the Torah and the we know the real deal, whatever. Pfft. Who cares? We're not making an impact. See, we can have all the kadusha and not still have any of the responsibility. You can be as holy as you want. Great. But if it's not impacting the people around you, who cares? People need hope. The song I've fallen in love with this year, I don't know that I've ever sang it or ever done it in any of the Christmas pageants or any of the Christmas things I've ever been in. But it, it hit my radar again this year. O come, O come, Emmanuel. And ransom captive Israel, who mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel, shall come to captive Israel. What an absolutely gorgeous song. So I hope in closing, I didn't take it away from you and not give it back. I hope I gave it back to you that understanding understanding what prophecy is doing when it's given sh when we apply it then to Yeshua it should just make it completely explode and blossom with meaning and understanding so I hope this is encouraging for you as the Christmas stuff starts to die down and go away and we have to uh, continue living. I hope that we live with a sense of partnership and a sense of tikkun